Okay, so my name is Nicole. I'm sure I'm bulimic and a compulsive overeater. Um, a little bit about me before I get into one of my favorite topics um, is just to give you a sort of sketch of, you know, um, I uh, came into recovery in 1993. My first program was Adult Children's Alcoholics. Um, and then Alan on. And then I got 12 stepped into OA uh, because I was in VA trying to learn how to manage money. Um, and I was with, uh, a, I was doing what they call a pressure relief group where they get together and they look at all the money you spent. You have to track your money for like, you know, 90 days and then they get together and they're like, they help you figure out where your money's going and whatever. And, um, and the friend that I was with, who ended up becoming a good friend of mine and roommate, she's like, well, where's the money that you spent on clothes? And I'm like, oh, I don't do that. Thinking like, I finally got something right. That's not where I'm spending my money. Can we focus on something else, please? But she kept asking me, you know what I mean? You know how that is? Like, well, why don't you spend money on clothes? Oh, I hate shopping. Why do you have shopping? Oh, I hate looking in the mirror. You know what I mean? And she's like, oh, do you want to go to an OA meeting? And I was like, I had no idea what that was. None. I was just like, at that point, it was in like my fourth or fifth 12-step program. I was like, fine. You know what I mean? I don't even care anymore. I'm like, sure, let's do it. Um, so we go, and um, just so you know, I am not a crier. I have to spend a lot of money in therapy to learn how to access my tears and cry. That is the only 12-step meeting where the very first meeting I cried the entire time. I had no idea that other women actually felt the way that I felt. None. I didn't even know it was a thing. You know how they say that? And I was like, oh, it's a thing. I had no idea it was a thing. And I was simultaneously like overwhelmed with that sense of not being alone and terrified, like busted, like, oh, oh, I felt like the analogy that I use is I felt like Linus with his blankie. And you know, when he's six years old, it's very cute. But when he's 29 and he's still got a blankie, you know what I mean? And remember Linus, he's like spouting theological wisdom all the time while he's full. I was like, look, as long as I'm smart and spouting theological wisdom to you, we're not gonna talk about my blankie. And, um, but there I am, and it was like, blankie's anonymous. You know what I mean? He was like, so the terror was, oh no, you can't, you can't take my food from me. You don't understand. I gave up drugs, alcohol, all that stuff I gave up, no problem, because I have no food. You know what I mean? I just, I went to those programs and I was like, yeah, it's not that hard. You just eat candy. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's in the book, you know? <laughs> so I found that out later. I'm, I'm just making a joke about that. But yeah, it was that sense of like anything that I got a little out of control with, you know, right to the point where someone might have intervened on me, I just quit. And I could because I always just fell back on my food. You know, and again, some identification that I always like to tell for newcomers is like, food got me out of bed in the morning. You know, food was, it was, you know, I, I grew up with two alcoholic parents who loved me very much, but were incredibly narcissistic and very self-centered. And the deepest form of abuse that I suffered was just pure neglect. I mean, I just have stories around like, you know, limping because they didn't take me back 
to to the doctor, you know what I mean, after I got an esophageal accident. And, you know, when they were supposed to, I mean, missing a tooth because they didn't take me back to the dentist. I mean, they were just, and we were middle class and they were just so into the look good and so into, you know, their own thing that I was, in that sense, for people who know ACOA, I was the lost child. And so I also had to raise myself and, and all of that stuff. And so my food was always there with that loneliness and that isolation. When I was younger, it was food and, and music. You know, I could just give me my food, give me my headphones. I'm not here anymore. I just leave me alone. Um, I'm also a, a trauma survivor. And so, you know, my story is, is that I was a pretty regular looking kid until puberty came. And then I was like, and I was a tomboy, you know? So I, I was like, the, the analogy that I use is like, I'm out on the field playing with all the boys, all of a sudden someone blows a whistle and we're all supposed to dress up and go to a dance, you know what I mean? And now all these guys that I just wanna play on the field with, you know, I remember playing on the field with, a, with all these boys one time and for the first time ever we were playing like tag and one of the boys tagged me in my vagina. And it was so, like, you know, and thought it was funny, and the other boys laughed. I mean, the game just changed. And I was like, I mean, I'm already dealing with two hilariously dysfunctional, crazy people at home. You know, at 11, my brother was born. So now, instead of being the lost child, I'm the built-in babysitter. And so my whole identity and existence is based on how I can help my mom. You know, and so to then have that game change, it makes sense to me now that all of a sudden in one semester I gained 60 pounds. I was like, I'm not doing this. I, I want out of this. Unfortunately, the consequence for me of gaining 60 pounds, aside from the stretch marks, aside from everything else, was that I became, I, I chose to become the fat girl and to be ridiculed and to allow myself to be ridiculed in order to feel safe, you know? And so I became someone I didn't actually want to be. And I sort of played into that. The other thing is, is that um, my dad weighed 185 and he was a bully. And so for me to weigh 185 was also a way of making myself feel safe. So, and I'm, and I'm describing this because I'm also a bulimic, which has a different feel to it, but my first entry into um, my eating disorder was about making myself feel safe. So it was about desexualizing my body through putting on weight, you know? So it wasn't just the food. And then eventually what happened is in recovery, I lost the weight, I, you know, and this can happen, the, the weight that I lost revealed some more trauma memories that I didn't know that I had. I had trauma memories that I knew that I had, but it revealed more. So then I had my first major relapse, but now I'm terrified of gaining weight. So I discover bulimia, which I learned about in the rooms. Thank you. Um, and, and then also because I was overwhelmed, I'm jumping, but you know, I kind of just want to do a sketch on this. I'm overwhelmed with feelings. And so for the bulimics, which I am one, what, where the bulimia hooked me was 
the overwhelm. And so my bulimia took this form. It wasn't like a daily thing, although it, it in the end became, it was like, it was this building up and this building up. Basically what happened is that I would get to a point where I was just feeling so overwhelmed. And I didn't really, I couldn't really articulate that. But what I would want was I would suddenly find myself, it would start with like, I'd have my regular meal and then I'd want a little bit more. Okay, that's fine. And then I'd want a little bit more. And then I got to know that, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get myself so uncomfortably full that I can't take it anymore. And then I'm going to purge. And for people who don't know, like, it's a sort of sickly spiritual experience to get it all out. So all the feelings that I want out, all the powerlessness that I want out, all of the rage that I want out, all of the helplessness, it was, it was because also after you throw up, you get flooded with endorphins. So it's this relief that I felt around getting it all out. And then afterwards, feeling like literally physically relieved and being like, oh, okay, you know? So there was that piece. Also, because I was in the rooms, I didn't want to gain any weight. You know what I mean? I was like, I, I'm, I don't want to go back. Because for me at that point, my depression was so tied into being overweight that for me to gain weight was to go back to being depressed. So then I was, so I was terrified of that. Now this also is where I had to completely redefine my higher power. Because what had happened is, is that my life circumstances got bigger than my concept of a higher power. And any time that happens, food becomes my solution. Any time that happens. So, and I also want to speak very briefly on this, which is, is that that's when I realized, and since then, I have made a point to be very, very transparent about my recovery process with my sponsees and with my fellows and make sure and not sell people the whole promised land of the 12th step. And here's what I mean by that. I came into the rooms young. I was lucky. Never tell a young person they're lucky. Trust me, I did not feel lucky at all. It felt horrible. All my friends were going out and partying. I'm going to meetings. Okay? If you want to say something to a young person, what you say to them is, I promise you if you stay in the rooms, there will be a day where you will look back and you will be so grateful that you started recovery so young. But don't, please don't tell them that you're just they're lucky. You know? Um, it would be like if you had a miscarriage and people said, oh, you're so lucky. You know, I mean, honestly, because that's what it, I know, but it's true, because that's what it feels like when you're a young person and all of your friends are out there partying and living that life. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Why do I have to go in here? You're not feeling lucky. Do you get what I'm saying? You're feeling like you just got sentenced to something that's so unfair. It's, it's overwhelming. So, um, so anyway, that's my public service announcement for <laughs> you know, young people. But uh, anyway, what happened with me coming in in the 90s is that they were, there, it was following this older trend in 12-step where you would talk about what it was like, what happened, and what's like now, and you would sell the promises. And you, would, and you were actually told when you got up to speak to make sure for the newcomer that you sell 
how great your life is. Well, when you're young and you don't know any better, you think you're going to graduate. You think that if you come in and if you do all this work and you do the steps, you're going to get to a place where you are disease-free and you are dysfunction-free and you're no longer going to have crazy people in your life, you know, and it's going to be those people over there and you've somehow taken the boat to the promised land where it's this exclusive club of well-adjusted, happy people and they're going to let you in and this thing's going to be behind you. So after 13 years, when I had, and I was speaking, I was going around, I was on interview, this is all in the Bay Area, when I had trauma memories come up and completely devastate me, and it was a health crisis, and then 2008 hit, it was 2006, the trauma memories came up, it wiped my body out, I was like on disability for four months with, you know, 36 years of post-traumatic stress disorder and adrenaline running through your body wears it out. And so I collapsed from exhaustion, and it took me two years just to be able to get back to work. Then I get back to work, 2008, layoff. I got laid off, and I was like, oh, I was like, you know, it was January 2008, right? So it was just in the very beginning. I was like, oh, I'll get a job. Three years later, bankruptcy. My boyfriend, gone. I mean, everything. So you can imagine, I'm in the room, it's 13 years, you know, just being like, are you Right? And then I got to listen to some newcomer. I'll never forget sitting in the back and this woman with three years coming up talking about how amazing her life is. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's just see how that goes. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? I mean, I was. I was like, you know, I'm not happy about this at all. You know? And so, so now, because of that, I'm very transparent around how now with whatever. So it was 98 that I came into OA. It was... 93 when I came into recovery, so I don't know where I'm at. I'm, well, it'll be in October, it'll be 27 years, so I'm 26 years now. I really make sure that my sponsors and all my people know, like, no, I still have a free flag, you know what I mean? Here's the thing, you know, I am on the short yellow bus. I am a goodie, okay? Like, that's when, but because of my recovery, I pass for normal. I pass for normal. What, the reason why I'm passing for normal is because in order for me to pass for normal, I have to do a lot of fucking work. Those well-adjusted people out there, they don't have to do that work. They're, you know, they got, you know, the 51% of normal parenting. They got just enough that where they grew up and they were well-adjusted, they knew people skills, they knew like not to run with scissors. I was like, no, you run with two scissors and you go like this. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and it's like I've learned not to do that. So, you know, 12 Step has, you know, given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. Like, I didn't know how to manage my, like I said, like, I used to say I was raised by wolves in a barn. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so 12 Step taught me everything. It taught me how to eat. It taught me how to have a checkbook, how to balance people, how to pay. It taught me time management, which is also a DA thing. It taught me how to be in loving relationship with alcoholics and to recognize that they have a disease and to set boundaries with them and be like, um, I, I can't be in this relationship with you anymore. It also taught me, you know, um, well, it taught me, of course, to how to eat, how to have relationships. I mean, what else is there? I mean, it just taught me management, money management, everything that my parents did not have the ability to teach me because it wasn't taught to them. 12 steps taught me. 
some form or another. So that's why I'm so passionate about this program. And that's why I love the idea of being your serenity retreat chair and being in charge of bringing you all together and being like, let's do this thing. Let's really fucking do it. So my topic for tonight is, so that's my story. That's who I am, that's my introduction. But here's one of my favorite, I've got a lot of favorite topics where people ask me, what do you want to talk about? And I'm like, name it. You know what I mean? I will create a talk around it. But tonight what I really want to talk about is that recovery requires two powers. Like a lot of people don't know that. They think, oh, it's all about, oh, you just, your higher power. No, 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 no. Let me tell you a little story. It's a little story about Bill W. and Dr. Bob. For people who don't know, those are the AA founders. Okay? So I really want to focus on Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob was, okay, let me back up a little bit because not everyone knows. So Bill W., white light experience. So he was a hopeless alcoholic. He'd been in and out of treatment. He, um, oh, there's a great movie. It's actually about Lois. It's like when you love, love is not enough. Love is not enough. Okay, if you want a great version of that story, watch that movie, Love is Not Enough, because the way that the actor depicts Bill W. is so much more authentic than the movie by James Wood or whatever. Yeah, don't watch that. Yeah, no, really. He's, he, just, he clearly does not know alcoholism, where it seems like the actor who whatever either knows it or really studied really well. He really gets it. I, it's so distracting to watch the James Wood. You're just like, this guy doesn't understand alcoholism at all. But anyway, but he would swear on the Bible. There are scenes where he's like, I swore on the Bible everything, right? He couldn't get sober. He's in Townsville Hospital for like the fifth time or something like that. I'm not, I'm great with about, but I don't like, Oh, he was in there five times. I'm like, I don't know. The point is, is he was in there more than once, twice, three times. And he overhears the doctor telling Lois he's going to die. He's like, oh my God, that's it. He has a white, this is important, he has a white light experience, right? He's got like, a light came into his room, you know, and all of a sudden he has a like, you know, experience, we'll just call it an experience, where somehow he was free from the obsession. To drink. So he's like on fire now about this thing. He goes about it the completely wrong way. He goes out there and tells everyone, you got to get yourself a white light experience. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and basically, you have to keep in mind, like, there were years of temperance programs before that. So alcoholics were so used to people coming up to them and saying, you got to find Jesus and then you'll be fine. So there was no relating. You know what I mean? It was like, I'd, you're preaching at me. And that's what Bill was doing. He was preaching at him. So he went back. He's like, this isn't working. And he goes, and the doctor's like, you got to stop preaching at people. Why don't you tell them how you know how they feel about alcohol? Stop talking about your white light experience. Start talking about how you understand them. You're one of them. So do you get what I'm saying? No more doing this. We're doing this. Me, you, Pat. But he can't get anyone sober. It's not working. He's staying sober just by carrying the message. Now, in the, that was in New York. In Cleveland, this is the guy I really like to focus on. Dr. Bob, right? So Bill W. was an atheist agnostic 
He's like, don't tell me what to do. There's no higher power. There's no God. Don't, you know, I'm not buying that. That, that religion stuff is for wimps. Then he has a white light experience. He's like, you know what? I was wrong. Sorry about that. I'm totally down with this. So that's right. But Dr. Bob was a devout religious man. He's the one that I like. He had a relationship with God. He had a faith, and he was religious, and he was very sincere. He wasn't one of those, like, he went to Sunday and then did whatever. But he had a disease that he was powerless over, right? So his faith alone was not keeping him sober. It didn't matter, you know? And he was sincere. And so when Bill wanted to come and talk to him, he's like, no, I don't want to do that. And he's like, well, just give him 15 minutes. And that 15 minutes turned into like five hours or something, four or five hours. And they stayed sober together. So two powers. The power of your personal relationship with a higher power. And then the power of fellowship. One addict working with another. The church of me too. Anlamont calls it the church of me too. So for those who don't know, just this week, New York Times published an article about the best treatment for alcoholism. And guess who's at the top? Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's been going around, right? It got sent to me by a sponsee. I sent it back, and I said, yeah, it's because of the fellowship. Now, let's think about this for a minute. There are all these treatment programs out there. And a lot of them, I don't know all of them, but a lot of them is, come, we'll get you sober, we're going to give you some tools, we're going to do some CBT on you, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then we're going to send you back out into the world of normies. Good luck. Right? That's not what we do in 12 steps. We're like, look, our experience and our history shows that if you try to do this on your own, eventually, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe five years from now, you will relapse because you will be out there and you will be with people that do not identify with you and you do not identify with. You know, you'll get into that place again where you feel like you're different from everyone else. You'll get to that place again where you're feeling isolated and alone. And eventually the disease will jump in on that and be like, you know, I'm always here for you. I've always been here for you. You're so beautiful. I love you. I love you. I'll wait. I'll wait. That's okay. Right? It's only when we're together that, I don't know about you, but I've been so excited because I'm like, I'm with my people. I mean, I've been hanging with April all day. I'm like, I've been acting crazy, like, I have no idea what's going to happen tonight. Don't tell anyone the speaker's not coming to her. I don't give a shit. She's been seeing me, like, crazy, and I'm like, I don't care. You know, she's my peeps, right? If I were at work, totally different. I'd be like, how am I presenting? Am I, do I seem crazy? Am I seeming together? If I were with normal people, I'd be like, am I seeming kooky right now? You know what I mean? But do you get what I'm saying? So it's like when we're together, it's like, okay, yeah. All right, I can actually just be completely in my own skin, you know, and I can just be exactly who I am, and you can come up to me, and I can say, like, hey, how are you doing? And you can say, 
I'm feeling a little off. And I could be like, well, do you need anything? Do you know what I mean? Like, that I would actually have the language to not be like, oh, let me fix you, number one. I could be like, well, do you need anything? Because if you do, I'd love to be of service to you. You know? And then I'm either dealing with someone who's like, uh, no, I'm good right now. You know? Or I'm dealing with someone, yeah, I just, can I talk to you for a minute? Well, where else does that happen? Right? So one of the things that I do with my sponsees is I, I really press this point. We, we obviously have to work on you know, the, the relationship with your higher power. That is fundamental because it is two powers. So the other thing is, is just only having the fellowship is not enough. Do you want to know why? Because we're not going to come to bed with you tonight. You know what I mean? Whatever your fantasies are, that's just not going to happen. You know? So it's like you are going to be alone at some point where you're not going to be able to get someone on the phone. You're not going to be able, and you're just going to be, it's just going to be you. And then what do you do? You know, how, where is your sense of faith and connection then? You know, and that's why whatever you believe in, to believe in a power greater than you that is stronger than your disease is fundamental. Now, I'm going to get a little nerdy here. For my people, they're used to this. For people who don't know me, I'm warning you. So, yeah. So, I love that they're coming out with more information about addictions. And one of the working definitions that they're coming up with now is that addiction is any time that you replace emotionally regulating with people, which is what we're designed to do, so for those who don't know what that means, let me just stop for a second. What it means is, I'm upset. I'm having all these feelings. I don't know what to do with them. As a trauma survivor and as an ACOA, the last thing I want to do is reveal them to any person because I don't feel safe doing that. That is actually counter to my wiring. What my wiring is, is that I have a drive to socially connect. So in order for me to deal with all of my feelings, I now have to go and regulate, which means take my um, exaggerated feelings or my feelings that are off balance to get myself back in the balance. I have to go find a thing. I have to go find something that is not a person. So even like you're saying, like, oh, well, sex addicts. Well, let me tell you, sex addicts dehumanize whomever they're with. So part of their recovery program, I was in Love Addicts Anonymous, so I learned a lot about this, um, is that they have to rehumanize their sexual object. That's part of their recovery program. But the point is, is that it's like, I'm having some sort of emotional state, anxiety, fear, whatever, in order for me to get any sense of relief from this, I'm going to go to an object, and I'm going to find some sort of emotional regulation there, whether it's alcohol, drugs, food, I'm going to become obsessed with my partner and fixing them. I'm going to throw myself into this work project and forget that I even have an emotional body. I'm just going to do all that. That's addiction. Re recovery and normal like emotional processing is I'm in an emotional state. I need to connect to someone who, can, who has the capacity to listen to my emotional state without trying to fix me without taking on all of my feelings. So basically who's boundaries and can help me get myself to my own emotional 
regulated state. That's normal processing. Where do we do that? We do that here. We do that with each other. You know, so that's the, you know, the higher power of like, okay, you're having a moment with the food, you're having whatever, you're praying, it's not enough, you're turning it over, it's not enough. Okay, what I think that means is, is that you need connection. So that's where it's like, I totally believe in that God's favorite instrument is people. So if you're praying a lot, you're not getting any relief. It's not because there's no God, it's because God's like, I've got your answer, and she's on the other line of your phone, and I'm waiting for you to get that hint that you're not going to be able to just isolate yourself with me and think that you're going to get this program of recovery. That's not how this works. You know, My job is to get you to a place where you are well-adjusted enough to be the social animal you are wired to be and to help you find healthy people and healthy communities that you can begin to, to heal those connections and learn that, oh, oh, people are safe. I know what I am talking about, I promise you. I promise you. So, like, just as, like, in freshman year, I was in honors, I was in a special class, I was tested for IQ, my plan, on the first day of freshman in high school was, I'm gonna go to Berkeley. That was my plan, I was like, boom. The first day, first hour of school, the teacher talked to us and said, hey, you're in this GATE program, you know, let me tell you right now that here are the colleges that you're going to go to, right? I was like, me, Berkeley, done. Fast forward to high school senior year, I'm a high school dropout, I'm living in San Diego doing crystal meth and going to drug dealers' houses where they had drugs, candy everywhere, guns, name it. That's where I ended up. So when I tell you I know how to travel from being with unsafe people, and not just, that's an extreme example, but I'm telling you, like, even after I got out of that, just friends that just wanted to, like, suck the life out of me for their own support system, bosses that had unreasonable expectations, you know, people who would lash out in anger that I just was like, oh, that's normal, you just sort of totally attacked me in that moment. Like, I have learned to heal myself out of attracting those kinds of people and realizing, like, that's not appropriate. That's not okay, that's not okay that you talk to me that way. Oh, you know what? You have, you're the one with the unreasonable expectations. Oh, you have those on yourself, and you're imposing those on me. And you know what? I need to find another job. Now, did I leave easily? No, I got myself fired on purpose. I'm just telling you, I had to do what I had to do. But I don't have to do that today. You know, today I could be like, I mean, it would be hard, but today I would not have to get myself fired in order to leave an unhealthy situation. So when I say I understand about learning how to emotionally regulate and to trust people and to build connections with people that you feel safe with, you know, I, I know what I'm talking about and I can tell you that it works, okay? So I'm feeling like I'd like to kind of open it up. Um, I don't really want to talk the full hour. First of all, it's 8.35, you know, we, it's Friday, we've had a long week. Um, but I do want to open this up for if you have any questions, you know, so before I just sort of 
end or whatever, if there's anything you want to kind of touch around having a uh, higher power and having the power of the fellowship and that you need both of those in order to recover.